30 years ago, I stood in front of a comic shop advertising the death of Superman in its window display. That moment outside Heroes World set me on a path, a lifelong fan journey leading directly from that tattered red cape to this podcast. Now, together, we mine Superman's vast 85-year mythology by examining, discovering, and reconsidering the stories that have shaped the last son of Krypton. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss the great Superman fan debates is a pair of guests. Here in Flat Squirrel Studios, we have Mr. Mike Sangregorio. Welcome back. Hi, thank you for having me. And virtually all the way from the Garden State, our great buddy, Mr. Ralph Puma. Welcome back. Hey, thanks again for having me. This is a first for Digging for Kryptonite. It's not a first for me in terms of my larger podcasting endeavors, but it is a first for Digging for Kryptonite. The first time we have two guests, a panel of three. This is exciting. <laughs> and people have requested the two of you in particular, right? Yeah, we're pretty great. From what I've seen, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this will be terrific. One of the things that I want to say at the outset here is that, again, this episode is about getting into and unpacking these debates that we as Superman fans either observe or take part in, largely online, I suspect, but in person as well. It's not necessarily my intention that we're here to debate each other per se, though I'm sure that can and will happen, and that's totally fine. And that's one of the reasons to have three, so we can have a tiebreaker. And Mike, you in particular, I feel like out of everyone I've had on the show, you and I differ the most. I feel like most of the other guests and I were pretty similarly aligned. We'll disagree about specific things within what we're talking about, but generally speaking, pretty similarly aligned. You're probably the one, though, where we differ the most. I hear that from so many people on so many <laughs> things that uh, the consistency is uh, not surprising. Yeah. This really would be its own conversation, but you shared your DCEU ranking after I did that episode, and everyone's entitled to their opinion, but good God, <laughs> was your list insane to me. <laughs> my, 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 now that the DCU has finally uh, been put to sleep, my, my view on it has not changed. I like the three movies based off the Shazam franchise. Uh, I like the one Joss Whedon did and that's, that's it. That's full stop. <laughs> I don't go back. I don't rewatch any of them. Oh, excuse me. The gun stuff, whatever James Gunn does, I watch, uh, regardless of what the, what the property is. All right. Well, fair enough. Now, I've had the idea for this episode for a while, but obviously didn't pull the trigger on it until now. And I think the reason why is that I have my preferred versions of all the things we're going to talk about. But at the same time, I do truly strive to be open-minded and not be militant in my opinions. And so as the audience knows, my fandom is very much informed by the Triangle Era comics and the Smallville television series. And that sort of provides my baseline, my default for how I look at all of this stuff. But I am open-minded enough and have become more open-minded, especially as I've gone on this larger exploration and recognize that even though I have my, my favorite version of all of this, that there are different ways to spin this legend and different ways to tell the stories. And so there aren't really many hills I would die on as a Superman fan because I recognize we all come at this from a different perspective and where we are in our lives and our fandom so much informs the way we receive these stories. And so that's probably why I haven't done this before, but I felt like we're deep enough into this podcast now. We've hit on a lot of these things already here and there, and this would be a great time to really dig in further. And I think 
more so than whatever, quote unquote, my answer is. I don't give my answers to all these things, but, <laughs> but more so than whatever my answers are, I think what I'm most interested in is just unpacking the arguments with all of this stuff. And we're, we have a list that we're going to go through. I shared with you guys ahead of time and I added a few, a few other ones. Some of them are kind of quick and silly and fun, and we'll probably spend a couple of minutes on them. Others are deeper and more substantial, and we'll probably have a more involved conversation. <laughs> but either way, I think this will be a lot of fun. And I think for any Superman fan listening to this, they'll be able to sink their teeth into it. I guess the last thing I want to say by way of setup, and then we'll, we'll get into this list here, is it's kind of a tough thing being a Superman fan. And we talked about this in the very first episode of Digging for Kryptonite that we ever did, where there's enough criticism of the character from non-Superman fans. But then within the fandom, there are these lines of division. And you see it a lot, particularly online on social media. I mean, for you guys in particular, do you, do you observe a lot of that? I mean, I, Mike, I know you're not super active, Ralph. You've kind of been in and out on the social media front. But, uh, but let me ask you guys, I mean, do you... These things that we're going to be talking about, I mean, do you see those lines of division in, in interactions that either you have or that you observe online? Like, what about you, Ralph? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, I see people arguing over comic book stuff all the time. I try not to. For some reason, my Facebook algorithm likes to feed me, like, the specific comic book news that makes me angry. So, like, people, like... Uh, talking trash about Marvel films and it's like, ah, oh, they're, they're all garbage. And it's like you, guardians three just came out. Like it's all of like that stuff is what my algorithm feeds me. So I always see like ridiculous stuff from CBR here and there, you know, that is like the more like clickbaity articles. And I, and I get caught by that and I look at the comments section. So I'm always seeing this stuff kind of floating around all the different opinions on every superhero and, what's good and bad about Marvel and, you know, how, you know, DC fanboys are kind of like a cult to me. <laughs> and, um, so I see all of it. Uh, the thing that I think really affects me the most outside of like the social media stuff is people's opinion of Superman who are, who don't really like engage with comic book stuff. And I think that that's something that on a grander scale, like needs to be kind of, corrected somehow and i hope that this you know new era of superman that might be coming up might pull people away from that it's just the oh he's so boring you know it's the usual thing that i think that one kind of i don't know it irks me sometimes i always feel like i have to defend him especially being a guest on this podcast now no for sure i totally hear you what about you mike the only thing i remember is when his trunks were taken away i remember everyone having an opinion on that. It just surprised me because I was like, oh, it, this, this is it. This is, this is us as a group of people. Like a minor change happened to a costume that's happened before and everyone's decided they suddenly have an opinion on this thing. And that, that made me laugh. I, I actually think his costume needs the trunks or else it's just this drab blue. But um, uh, that I always go back to that where it was like, oh man, I can't wait till it comes back. And then I think Action 1000 was the big return, right? That was the, it was cartoonish. It was Malibu Stacy from The Simpsons. It was like, we gave him his trunks back to celebrate issue 1000. Not only that, and I'm sure I've talked about this before, but at C2E2 in Chicago that year, DC gave out red underwear as this promotional <laughs> thing. And our mutual friend, Chris Delando, who works for the organization that runs that convention, hooked me up with a pair of those underwear, which I still have. That but, you're wearing right now. Right now. As we speak, only, <laughs> only those underwear, actually. Yeah. I'm in studio. <laughs> that's, well, that's, look, we don't do the video podcast anymore, so anything else. <laughs> but 
it's and here's the thing. I, I don't say this to to lecture or anything. And I I appreciate whenever these debates unfold. I appreciate everyone's passion for the character. And I on looking on the bright side and trying to be positive. I think ultimately that's where it stems from. Hopefully, so I appreciate everyone's passion. I think the thing that always kind of is a little off putting to me, whether we're talking Superman or anything else, is when people present their opinions as fact. And in fairness, maybe this happens sometimes on social media. You are, on Twitter at least, limited in the number of characters that you have, and you also don't have the benefit of tone. I, I don't know. But sometimes when when opinions are presented as gospel, that, that, like I said, does put me off a little bit because I think it is important to recognize that there are different ways to look at all of this stuff. But all that being said, I think it's time to dive into our list of debates here. Let's start with a quick fun one here. Although people are split on this. We'll do a little pronunciation game here. Okay. Is it Lex Luthor or Lex Luthor? Mike, where do you land on this? Um, yeah, I don't know. I didn't realize that was a thing until uh, you mentioned it. Uh, I guess however Michael Rosenbaum pronounces it, that's that's where I fall. Does he have uh, a consistency across the seasons he's on in Smallville? Yes. Yeah, so Smallville, not just Rosenbaum, but Smallville itself was exceedingly consistent. I'm sure there's a Luthor here or there, but Smallville was exceedingly consistent with Luther. And there's a very <laughs> famous moment between Lionel and Lex where Lionel is like, we're Luther's son, <laughs> we're Luther's. So they really, they really drove that home. I'm actually surprised. I thought you were going to say Luthor, especially given your love of Clancy Brown and the animated series. I thought you were going Luthor. I'm surprised right at, right at the jump here. I, I just, I, I, I hear a R- Rosenbaum. Uh, uh, I feel like the, was the most consistent for me because Clancy Brown is 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 great, but um, you know he wasn't in every episode. When Michael Rosenbaum was in that show, he was in every episode for the beginning. So I think whatever he said is what stuck in my brain. What about you, Ralph? I get some like Rafe Fiennes vibes from Lex, so it might actually be Lex Luthor. But I think he would correct people to be Luthor as kind of like a business strategy. <laughs> I think he would correct regardless of what they said, right? He would, yeah. he would say the other thing just to put them on the back foot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's amazing. I oh, that's a great. Oh yeah. That's a great take. Yeah. yeah. I really yeah. like that. It's funny to me because I mean this is the people are split on this. I've I've heard from at least one listener who is very adamant about it being Luthor. I see this online, Reddit threads and whatnot. It's mm-hmm. interesting to me because I feel like most of the times we have heard it on screen, it has been Luther. 10 years of Smallville, even though Rosenbaum wasn't there the whole time, but the Luthers were part of it in some way, shape, or form. Uh, Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman was was consistent with that as well. Superman, the movie, and that whole series, that's interesting because you do have Otis very pointedly saying Mr. Luthor, but I (laughs) I always took that, it's so cartoony, it's so over the top, it's in my mind, meant to be that mispronunciation. I mean, Gene Hackman himself, that famous line at the end of the movie, Lex Luthor, greatest criminal mind of our time. So I, it never, I don't know. To, my, and to me, I, I like yourself, I never really thought that this was such a, a question mark, but I guess it is. Another little piece that I want to add is I always see, especially after um, reading All-Star Superman and kind of taking in even my adventures with Superman, that Superman has a very, like, it has to have almost like a Star Trek level of science fiction besides like the real world modernism. And so Luthor makes a lot more sense for a character than like Luther. I, 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 I kind of, I like both. 
and I'm happy with both, but something about like, and it carries on into one of the other ones that you're probably going to ask me, but like, I think Luthor fits the universe best. Yeah, I agree. Cause it sounds almost Kryptonian. Like, uh, you know, he's, he's of the house of, or he's Luthor. He's, you know, yeah. he's, you could see him on the science council being like that. Jarell doesn't know anything. So <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. And look, Again, I, I do. I would argue, live action wise, we've had Luther far more than Luthor. But in the animated space, I feel like it's been very consistently Luthor. Superman, the animated series, certainly, but even going back to Superpowers and or Super Friends, I should say, and even the a lot of the DC original animated movies that have come out, a lot of them really are, if not exclusively, Luthor. So I get it. The, the only other thing, and then I'll, I'll we'll move on to the next one, is I have seen it said it's spelled with an O-R, not an E-R. <laughs> but there are so many words that end with O-R that are not pronounced yeah. <laughs> that way. Plus, it's a family name. I, I, my, always, my default would be like, well, you can, you can pronounce it as quote-unquote correctly as you want, but at the end of the day, it's, it's their name. Like, you, you tell us, like, how do you want it pronounced? So then I, I don't know if that argument uh, holds much weight. Ralph, you look surprised when I said it was spelled O-R. Maybe it's just one of those, like... Um those things I never realized. I always, for some reason, thought it was ER, but I guess I just didn't pay close enough attention in reading, and I'm just, my memory is lacking. No, no, it's all good. But I, you guys, you hit on something. I really, if I ever have the opportunity to write anything, that's the, that's what I'm going to do. He's going to correct, he's going to correct you no matter what you call him. <laughs> I think that's great. <laughs> all right, so I think, Ralph, I think you were alluding to this, and there's one more in this pronunciation area here. Kara Zorel or Kara Zor-El. And Ralph, I'll let you take that one first. Yeah, it's what I was saying before. That side, the, the Kara just feels so much more in the realm of Superman than Kara. So you have Luthor, you have Kara, you have Kal-El. It all kind of flows together nicely and kind of fits really well. Uh, every person I've known in real life who has that name pronounces it as Kara. So when I heard someone pronounce it as Kara, I was like, what are you doing? What is that? Why, why are we doing that? I was very, very surprised. So I, I've never pronounced it that way. Um, I was, I was almost shocked that that was a thing. I, again, I, I was surprised. Yeah. Again, I mean, animated series and Smallville, it was Kara and it really wasn't until now in fairness, that's not a character who's gotten as much play in other media. So maybe there just weren't as many opportunities to hear it said, but I feel like it really wasn't until we got to the Melissa Benoist CBS slash CW series where it was Kara, Kara, Kara. And I feel like that has cemented for so many people that when I say Kara Zorel, I feel like I'm saying it wrong, even though in my heart, I don't think I am. But Ralph, your point is well taken. And I, I could probably get more on board with Kara than with Luthor. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> what do they say in the Flash? Do you know? In the Flash, the movie. The movie, yeah, because she's in that, right? Oh yeah, uh, I I blocked most of that. So okay, all right. I did too. That's why. That's why I asked. Yeah, she was great in it, but I I blocked out as much as I could, so I wasn't sure. I uh, I don't know. I remember having a visceral reaction to Kara as well, but I think just over time I've softened to it, and I had like I genuinely had that like what did she just say? <laughs> like, <laughs> like while watching it, but like, you know, my opinion is always malleable. I'm always, you know, susceptible and welcoming of change in the long form. And I'm always willing to admit, 
you know, oh, maybe I was wrong or maybe I like this better after, you know, Which consideration. probably sounds like it would make you a terrible comic book fan because <laughs> you're know, like, oh, I they know. changed something. This might be good. Great. And then you move on very pleasantly without yelling. So yeah. that's what I like about you, Ralph. I do feel for people named Kara who pronounce it as Kara who are fa- I mean, this is a, <laughs> the Venn diagram of this. If your name is Kara and you pronounce it Kara <laughs> and you're a fan of the Supergirl character, there's probably, there's, there's something special about the character, but sharing the name with the character and the pronunciation. And then if all of a sudden it becomes Kara, I would be, I would be upset about that. If anyone out there listening to this falls into that category and I don't know, but my heart goes out to you. Cause that, that would, that would kind of bum me out a bit. I kind of like that, uh, Ralph is really selling me on this idea of adding in the sci-fi element. So it's like maybe Kara is just how it's pronounced in on Krypton or Argo or whatever. You know, it's a very specific, no, no, no I'm from there. There's There would have been 16 of me in, in Kryptonian day school, and it's like it's pronounced Kara. So, all right, cool. I I feel for the Karas as well, because when I first saw, as once again, going back to Rafe Fiennes, his name is spelled Ralph. And I was like, hey, it's a Ralph that isn't a dog or like <laughs> – named after vomit or like the dumb kid. And he's like this, like, and it was like, no, it's Rafe. Well, it's when I was going to call him Rafe Wiggum from now on, by the way, (laughs) thank you very, very much for that. I needed that. You're welcome. I always go back to the actor who played Mr. Fantastic in those 2000s Fantastic Four movies. His name looks like it's Johan Gruffid, but it's like Ian Griffith or something like that. I think think it's Johan. I looked this up recently because I was having this argument with someone and I couldn't figure out how to pronounce it. And it, I think it's, I think it's Johan. It's just spelled, I, I don't know, not a way I would pronounce Johan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's tricky. Well, we, a few episodes ago, well, actually more than a few episodes ago, I had our mutual friend Rich Roney on, and we looked at a selection of pre-crisis stories featuring the bottle city of Candor. And it was interesting because throughout that episode, his pronunciation of the bottle city itself, but also the citizens of the bottle, he went with the most exotic, unexpected pronunciations. There was a character who on paper and the way I read it was Donnell and Rich is talking about Donnell and any, any time there was an opportunity to, to sort of, I don't know, dress it up or put this more foreign exotic spin on it. He went with it, but I don't know, maybe, maybe I was wrong as Ralph is making a compelling case for this more sci-fi flair. You know, it's, it's interesting with Rich. He's older than us. So he was a fan of this before he, heard anyone pronounce it. You know, if you, if you think about it, there's so many things that we've read in comics or books or whatever without the luxury of, uh, you know, someone pronouncing it correctly. So it's like you make up the pronunciation in your head. I'm sure I pronounced a hundred Marvel characters incorrectly until these movies started up. Um, or I just met other people. Um, but with Roni was the same way. Like he saw bottle city of Candor years before there was any adaptation of it. So it's interesting to think that he just held on to that. And he said, Nope, that's how I pronounced it when I was a kid. I'm going to stick with it. Yeah. And we had a whole discussion about that, about how he was, he kept calling it the bottle city of Kendor. And what was so, and I had a bunch of people reach out after that and I'm glad people found it amusing and he was a good sport. It's just funny because he and I, we, we had talked so many times about doing this episode you guys know, I'm talking to Rich, it's, you know, he's, he gets excited and, and we're planning far out. And so every time we would talk, we'd have these weekly calls, he would talk about it. And I, I would always say, like, I'm looking forward to doing that Candor episode. He heard me say it so many times, but it's just, it was so, it was so cemented. It's, it's interesting. So that's all I have on the pronunciation front. I don't know. There might be a little thing here, uh, Lana or Lana. I feel like Lana pops up every now and then rare. It's rare though, but that to me is really not a question mark. 
Yeah, yeah Lana, Lana for me. And a side note, um, on Don L, that's what the production assistants called um, uh, what the Godfather <laughs> behind the scenes on Superman. No, I'm just making a joke. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought you were going to say that's what they called Richard Donner. Yeah, that's I thought, that's where <laughs> that's I thought you were that's going with one. that. Yeah, yeah they yeah. like sarcastically called on set. Just oh, we got to go serve Don L. That's another potential <laughs> member of the Science Council is Don L. Him with his glasses and his 70s hair. I, I like that. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. I would like to now move into a more serious realm, mm. and I'm talking about hair or the lack thereof. And first, I want to ask you, this was not on my original list, but I thought about it later. So in the story that got me into comics, of course, Superman meets his end at the hands of Doomsday. And then during the reign of the Superman, reign of the Superman storyline, Superman returns to life after a stay in the Kryptonian rejuvenation chamber. Uh, Hair is short upon his uh, removal from that, but then over the course of his continued convalescence and his trip across the country in the purple battle suit, by the time he emerges from that, he's got this long hair. Now, for years since, fans and creators alike have, perhaps somewhat humorously, somewhat dismissively, whatever the case may be, characterized that longer hair as a mullet. Dan Jurgens himself, one of the chief creative architects of Superman during this entire period of time, has been adamant, and I have seen his social media posts about this, that it is not a mullet, that he never drew it as a mullet. He also went to say he never drew Clark in a ponytail either, that that was other artists. So is it a mullet or not? Ralph, what do you think? No, that's not a mullet. That's like Fabio hair. Yeah. It's like flowing locks. I know. What about you, Mike? Yeah, no, I, 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 I called it the super mullet for years. And when I read that Dan Jurgens was like, nope, I just wanted it to be long. I, I've, I've since referred to it as hockey hair because I heard Kevin Smith use that <laughs> phrase once. Uh, so that's that's how I've referred to it a couple of times. But definitely for for years before I read the Jurgens correction, I called it the super mullet. Yeah, I think, I mean, myself as well, I'm sure. I'm sure if I checked the tapes and I went back to the past episodes, I'm sure I've, I referred to it as that. I feel like this might be a case more of people using it as a shorthand. Although now, now that we have hockey hair, I would happily use that. Uh, yeah. I'm hoping yeah, I'm like using that, that correctly. I like that. Yeah. I just, I, I stole it from Kevin Smith. But I feel like that's whether it's mullet or hockey hair, it's, it's shorter and punchier than being like, Oh, they had the long hair. So I don't, I wonder, and I would be curious for people who have called it a mullet. Do you genuinely think it is a mullet or are we just using that as more of a shorthand? Because yes, a mullet is very specific. I feel like the term mullet was used to describe it because I don't know how well received it was. So I feel like I want to be dismissive of this change. Now, Ralph, you're not going to understand this being, uh, you know, uh, open to every change that there could possibly be. But, you know, when, uh, when, when you're a fan of these things, you don't like every change. So I, I just always viewed it that way. Like that's how wizard the magazine would present it. It's like, Oh, well, you know, there was that time in the nineties where Superman had a mullet and it was this way of saying that was bad. You know, we all agreed that was bad. We can make fun of it and move on. Um, the ponytail though, I actually have nostalgia for because he has the ponytail in Marvel versus DC, uh, where he confronts Peter Parker and Peter Parker is like, you are huge and you have a luxurious ponytail or I don't even, I think it might actually be Ben <laughs> Riley. but when you said the ponytail is like, that's what I have nostalgia for. Yeah. It's in, I will say this and I'm not throwing any artists under the bus here, but I think when you do look at that period of time, I, I think there might've been some artists I love Jackson Geis, who was drawing action at the time. I feel like his rendition, I have to go back and, and double check, but I feel like his rendition might have veered more into a mullet-esque. 
So I do think there was variation among the artists drawing, but yeah, overall, I'm going to go with the, with the creator's intent. And also I think genuinely the way that it was for the most part depicted, it was just long hair, not a mullet, but I don't know at the same time. And Dan Jurgens does feel very particular about this, but for, if in my mind, in my heart, I, I'm okay with sort of using that mullet as a shorthand. It's something that we all know. That's the thing. Even if it's not really accurate, it still immediately calls to mind exactly what we're talking about. And my buddy Tyler from the Krypton Report, he's doing a side podcast project now that's called Electric Mullet, as he and his co-host <laughs> nice. are going through this period of time. So. I don't know. There's something to it. I think it, it's taken on a life of its own, I guess is what I would say. Well, when he gets out of that battle suit and he's wearing the, the, the black costume, I guess you'd call it, the, it definitely looks a little, little bit shaggier there. It's it's like, you know, it grew on its own. Uh, you know, he's he's mad. He's angry. He's depowered. He's got these giant cartoonish guns. Uh, I, I would say it's definitely more mullet-esque there because he's just like, you know, he's not the Superman we're used to. He's just he's going to he's going to save everyone and he's going to get the bad guy. So def- definitely it- there. It kind of looks like the like modern, like, you know, younger kids mullet that's been popular right now, where it's kind of like, you know, big over around here, which is why I understand the hockey hair, because it looks like, you know, there's a helmet on and you took the helmet off, but you have this long hair, but you still have helmet hair. So it's kind of like that, like, modern mullet but it is i mean it's the super mullet right so mm-hmm. like it it can be you can call it this the, the super mullet and you should know what that is yeah for sure now this next one i don't know if this one is so much of a debate like a hard debate and there are a number on this list that fall into this category but I, there's different ways to to spin it and i wanted to get your take on, on what you prefer so keeping on this thread of, of hair or now the lack thereof lex's baldness over the years, we have gotten different interpretations for why Lex is bald. The famous Silver Age Superboy story that revealed this past between them in Smallville where there was this lab fire and Superboy saved Lex, but Lex blamed him for these chemicals that made him lose his hair. In the modern era, starting with Byrne, he's just an older guy who's balding and then he loses his hair. Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, full head of hair on John Shea that whole first season. He's only bald when he comes back from the dead in the next season. Smallville, very specific take. He's caught in the meteor shower and that causes him to lose his hair as a child, which colors the way he is is viewed as he as he grows up. Most recently, I suppose, with the Jesse Eisenberg version in Batman v Superman and the Michael Cutlets version on Superman and Lois, just shaves his head, like has hair and shaves it or it gets shaved in prison. So I don't know, where do you guys land? What is the quote unquote best explanation for why Lex is bald? What do you think, Mike? And I'm not just, I'm not asking you first just because, just because you you share you share the look, but I wanna I wanna toss it to you. I I like shaving my head just because my hair started going when I was very young, and it's uh, it was not a good look. And once I started shaving my head, I just it was much easier. Um, but for for Lex again, I I go back to Smallville. I love the idea that it is even if he had no control over it, that it is Clark's fault. I I think that's great. I think that's one of those amazing things that um, maybe they didn't add it to the mythos because it is a reinterpretation of what happened in the Superboy, um, which I I like. I like that a lot. Um, But I I think it's great in Smallville because Clark had no control over it. Lex had no control over it, but it it binds them together. And to your point, it makes Lex – uh, have one more mark against him when he's trying to be social and trying to get out from under his father's shadow all those years before he even meets Clark. Uh, and that, that, that baldness is a constant reminder of like, you've already affected my life and, and you're going to come to the crossroads where you can choose to see me as a brother 
or we're going to be the greatest enemies that have ever existed. Uh, so I, I, I really, really like the Smallville take on it. What about you, Ralph? I as well do love the Smallville take. I feel like, I, you know, I, I should be dissenting or something along those lines to make things more interesting, <laughs> but that Smallville take, you know, that when I saw that for the first time, I was like, that's so cool. You know, I just, I just loved that concept. What I don't appreciate and what I hope to never see again is Lex having hair for the majority of the the film and then suddenly not. Like, I would just, just like, give me Lex Luthor bald. I don't need to see him with hair. I don't need to see him become Lex Luthor. I don't need to see him shave it. I just need Lex with no explanation of why he's bald in something. Because I, like, I, I love the originals, but just the fact that he's, you know, always has hair <laughs> drives me crazy. <laughs> and then like Jesse Eisenberg was a fantastic performance. And I just think it would have been great to see like actual, like the, the look as well. Yeah. And you get just a fleeting glimpse of it in that yacht scene at the end of, yep. Oh, I forgot about that. That's where Deathstroke shows up, right? Yeah. Yep. Oh, okay. Well, you've never seen the true version of that scene because it, it goes in a very different direction and, and Zack Snyder's Justice No, League. I have I have famously not ever even attempted to watch uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League. I was told it would uh, make something pop in my brain, so I've avoided it up until now. <laughs> we'll get to the Snyder stuff. It's on the list. But I purposely didn't start with it. Well, for a couple of reasons. We'll, we'll get to it. We'll, we will, we'll, of course, we'll get to that. But we have other fish to fry here. I, I hear you guys, both of you, with the hair. I, I mean... Big surprise. I like the Smallville version best. <laughs> <laughs> we are knocking these out of the park today. If anyone's playing a drinking game at home, it's like anytime Anthony or my or anyone is like, Smallville did it best. Let's take a shot. Don't do that. That actually would be dangerous. But <laughs> I, I agree with you for exactly the reasons you said. I don't need to rehash. You hit the nail on the head. I, I think it's what's the thing about Smallville, and I'm sure I've said this in, in one of our episodes or when I was on Always Hold On to Smallville, but it's always kind of crazy to me that Smallville had Lex bald throughout for two reasons. Number one, this was a WB CW show, young, sexy actors. And that's not to say you can't be bald and sexy. I'm not saying that, but in terms of traditionally what, what the, the view would be, you might have expected him to have hair. The other thing too, is that knowing that show as well as we do, can't you see a scenario where his baldness is the final step toward him becoming the Lex Luthor, a la the shirt rip for Clark. So yep. I give them so much credit because it added this whole other dimension to the character and this idea that he grew up that way. I mean, to because you can, I mean, growing up as a child without hair would, you know, it certainly played into everything that Lex dealt with uh, at the, that boarding school or whatever, where he mm. was there with Oliver Queen getting bullied and whatnot. So, yeah, that's my that's my that's my preferred version. I said the, ex, the the Excelsior, Excelsior Academy. Yes, I always remember you. that because I was like, "Are you you calling out Stanley?" That's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think ultimately, I just want I want there to be a reason beyond just oh he he just loses his hair. Whether it's the meteor shower or again some sort of incident in Smallville that he blames Clark for, or the shaving of the head. It's it's not my favorite, but at least it gives you that dramatic moment and reveal of him sitting down and Smallville did give us a great version of that, but with Lionel instead of, instead of Lex at the end of season three, where he's in prison, he's like, do it. And you get that. So I just want there to be something more beyond just always losing his hair. But I like, I like the Smallville track. I did always like the, uh, 
the for all seasons like hair loss through the yeah. books too yeah. that's one i always uh liked as well yeah. but just for that like because it's so contained and it's its own thing like um there's that spider-man book that came out like life story that puts his whole life story in that one you know kind of graphic and that i just like that concept like that works for me like over time he's balding along with superman's growth in power i think that's like a nice like thematic element right on what yeah you I, I was i was gonna say something similar and an all-star superman him him drawing on his eyebrows i always go back to because it's a it's a vanity thing as much as anything else right he did he did not choose to lose his hair even when he shaves his head he's doing it to make some sort of statement like if it were up to him he'd have the hair that clark has basically he'd have nice full hair eyebrows you know he's a very vain human being that's one of the things that defines him so you know when all of that is taken from him and he makes a point of drawing it back on to ralph's point it's a nice comparison to clark who is growing in strength who is very rarely drawn to be older or aging or anything like that uh it's a it's a good it's a good dichotomy especially you know the couple of times Byrne did it. They did it in the golden age where they also draw him heavier. You know, he's not, there's that version of Lex that that's existed since the beginning where he's not a physical threat. He's a little, he's even a little portly. And I like that too, because it's like, no, the, the brain is the threat, but the body he's, he's not going to punch Superman out. So. Well, to your point about the vanity, that's one of the things I love about the triangle era storyline where Lex poses as his own son in a clone body and he's tall and fit and has this flowing mane, a very Lionel Luther-esque mane of yeah. hair. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina for people of all ages and walks of life. With more than 40 years and a new second location to its name, Acme is a multiple-time Eisner Award nominee. The shop features a significant contemporary and vintage selection, as the Acme team uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material. Mail order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available anywhere via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Hey everyone, I'm Marshall and she's Courtney and we're your hosts of Blurred Watchers Podcast here on the Pop Break. Come hang out with us as we discuss, cross-examine, theorize, summarize, and review our favorite offerings. And tangents, there will be tangents, whether it be live, streaming, or anything in between. If we watch it and think it's cool, we invite you to come hang with us as we all talk about it. Our episodes post every third Monday on the Pop Break Podcast feed. See you there. Bye. This episode made possible in part by educator, hobby comic book collector, and pop culture enthusiast, Sam Lim. Sam is based in the South Jersey area and is looking to connect with other comics fans as well as retailers. They are also looking for comic shops to explore, so recommendations are welcome. Be sure to follow Sam on Instagram at SZLComics to see their latest comic pickups and shop adventures. I want to jump to the Christopher Reeve movie series. And there a few items here, but let me start with Superman the movie. What is your understanding or your interpretation of the mechanics of the time travel that Superman performs at the end of Superman the movie? Is he A, for lack of a better term, rewinding time and then pressing play, which begs the question, why aren't the other events that we saw previously unfolding again? Or B, is he simply traveling through time himself to the past such that 
He is occupying the same point in time as his past self, who's taking care of the other business while Superman is saving Lois. And we are just not seeing the past Superman because my, I've always thought he was rewinding time. I sort of went with the effect that they showed us. I'm like, he's rewinding time, but why isn't everything else happening? But is there an, I, so I'm very curious about this. Oh, I love that headcanon now. Like that's it for that. Like that changes it all so nicely. <laughs> But yeah, I think it's I, like I always saw it as the rewinding time and I always was, you know, never thrilled about it because I came to those movies real late. Like I didn't even see them when I was young. I saw them, you know, I was 17 or 18 the first time I saw them. And that is not the time to watch those movies. <laughs> what about you, Mike? I hate that ending. I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to go full negative so early in this. I hate that ending. Wait, so mechanics of the time travel aside, just the fact that he time travels? The fact it? that he time travels because at no point in that movie, and again, I'm not a professional writer in any capacity, but they never set that up. They never do anything. It's just, it's like you were sitting there and you were writing this script and you had a bunch of good stuff and you get to the end, you realize Lois is dead and you have to undo it somehow. And suddenly he can do this thing, which granted he can do in the comics. I'm not saying that there's no history to pull from, but in the movie, I remember even as a little kid, it was like, what, how, where is this coming from? And it's never, you know, it's one of those things where Donner does this and the other guy who replaced him, I forget his name. It's like, they do this all the time. It's like, he just comes up with a new ability. He uses it to get out of the situation and it's never referenced again. And it, granted in the silver age comics, that was a thing. Fine. I get that. But like, these are movies, like these are written by people and directed by people who are very good at their craft. And Christopher Reeve is, is perfect. So it, I just got to the end of that. And I was like, I'm, I'm done with, I'm done. With <laughs> but mechanically I'm, I'm with Ralph. I've never heard that second interpretation that you just said. And I, I do actually like that. So I'm maybe one day I'll have to rewatch it. Maybe my girls are a little older. I, I do hear you. And especially for that first Donner movie in particular, where it was all about the truth and the reality of the story that they were telling. And I, I've always wrestled with this a bit because you do have the setup in terms of Jorel warning Kal-El about interfering in the course of human history, but I never took, took, took it to be literal, like literally, <laughs> literally changing the timeline. And that's one of the things I've always bumped up against with that movie where his, his very presence in the world would change the course of human history. So it feels like this is conflicting advice here, like save the people but don't change anything. But I, I guess if you look at it more literally, I guess it maybe makes more sense. I always thought it would have been nice for that movie if after Jonathan dies and he rakes himself over the coals where he was like, there's nothing I could have done. There's nothing I could have done. If there was a subplot or someone, what's his name? Bring Marlon Brando back for one line. Be like, Oh no, you, you could fix that. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a one-time thing. It's going to take a little, you know, you're going to need to soak up more solar radiation or what, whatever, like lean into it where it was like, do I want to risk it? Do I want to go back in time and save my father? He was old. He might have another heart attack. I don't know the damage I'm going to do. And then at the end, when the love of his life is dead because of something terrible that happened that he knows he can prevent and he's mad and he's angry and he's more powerful than he's ever been, then he does the risk. But, but set it up. Do just the world's most basic level of narrative legwork of just saying you lost your father, you're blaming yourself. There might've been a way to prevent this. Is that a risk you're willing to take? And then he has to wrestle with that and he gets to the end of the movie and Lois is dead and he's, he's losing it. He's screaming, he's angry and he just does it, you know, damn the consequences. And he's Superman. So everything works out fine. And I buy that because that is narratively consistent, but it's like, oh, to your point, it's like, 
what else did you change? Like, what else did you, like, just, oh, drives me crazy. Uh, I, I love that, but I want to add a little bit to that because imagine if the scene is him going back repeatedly to try and help Jonathan with, mm. and the, just the heartbreak. I want to hurt people. I like to hurt people in my writing. So, like, just him going back to try and help Jonathan and really drilling that helplessness of not being able to help him home because yeah. that's my favorite part of that aspect. <laughs> oh, I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, that that makes it more Uncle Ben esque, where it was like I did something. I really had a hand in it. And I'm not just blaming myself for it. I I like that. That's good. Well, there's that great Booster Gold issue that I've referenced before from the Jeff Johns Dan Jurgens run, where Booster tries to prevent Barbara Gordon from being shot by the Joker. Oh, so and good. It's one of those immovable points in time, or whatever they call it. And he just he keeps trying, and it just doesn't work. And I really I really don't want to be a broken record here, but <laughs> but Smallville. <clears throat> And its 100th episode dealt with this whole idea of a do-over in time travel. And Clark really learns an important lesson. And his decision not to, to well, I guess he only had that one one shot crystal anyway. But And there is a deleted scene, actually, where he goes to Jor-El and wants another do-over. <laughs> so maybe he didn't learn much after all. But but at least that episode. And you over the course of the show, to, that, to Smallville's credit, there are later points where he... Well, there is another time where he, I don't know, he, he goes back and forth. There are times where he will will give himself a do-over and other times where he recognizes that's dangerous. But in any event, there's at least it's set up there. I, I I think your point is a valid one. I, perhaps there are the Superman the movie purists who will disagree, but I, I think your point is is very valid. And I think with any kind of setup that I would have been more okay with it. I don't I don't mind. I'm not, I don't object to it as much as you do, but mm-hmm. I get your objection. I totally do. But the the mechanics of the time travel is something that's always bugged me. So I really do like that interpretation that he just traveled back in time yeah. and we're just not seeing his past self taking care of everything else. Yeah. I think also, that's better. for the listeners at home, we three are millennials. I, I know that if you are Gen <laughs> X and you saw that movie in theaters, it was as important to you as me seeing like, the first X-Men movie. So I am not in any way saying that if you saw that movie and you love it, you're, you're bad or you like bad stuff. That's great. I'm happy when people really like it. I'm just saying I'm younger. I saw it on TV. I did not get it. And then I immediately went back to my crappy X-Men comics. I, I also like wonder like, was anyone's mind blown about the time travel? Because, like, that's still, it's, like, pre-Back to the Future, stuff like that. And where's anyone, like, oh, my God, what just happened? Like, that kind of, like, excitement over that moment. Like, I, I don't I don't have the context for that, you know? That's, that's a, a good, good question. Yeah. Okay. Superman 2. Now, I want to start with this. The scene at the end of the movie where Clark goes back to the diner and puts that bully in his place. Ralph is very excited here. We've been watching these movies right since we were kids. I never, I never had a problem with Clark's actions at the end of the movie. It felt like, okay, this guy deserved it. But in seeing and hearing people talk about that scene these days, I feel like there's maybe been a little bit of a shift or, or whatnot. And it, it begs the question, is Clark out of line? Is Clark a bully for his actions at the end of that movie going back? And we have to specify we're talking about the theatrical cut because if we're talking about the Donner cut, and I will circle back to that, Clark's actions are insane because he reverses time again in the Donner cut and none of the events of the movie happen. So the idea that he would go to that diner and beat the crap out of that guy is like, is bonkers. So specifically in the theatrical cut where they had had this prior interaction that remained in the timeline and he goes back. Ralph, you were, you were so excited about this. Let me ask you that first. Is he, is he a bully or is he justified? Do you remember back in the day when I would send you panels from supermanisajerk.com or whatever it was? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, those that is like purely one of those moments, like 1950s jerk Superman, like I am Mr. American bully with patriarchal values gonna do my thing. And I just as a standalone moment, just absolutely love it. Do I love it for the character being as a part of his history and all of that? I mean, it is included, you know, it's there, but I just think it's so funny. What about you, Mike? I, yeah, I'm I'm with Ralph. Again, if you go back to a certain era in in his history, him just like messing with this guy who picked on Clark, that that's consistent. But I, I, I will say in the movie, it's a little weird because it's like you're back to being God, right? You are like wildly pulling your punches and you are just like basically playing with this insect man. Like it just, it seemed wildly out of character for the Chris Reeve version of it like if you're gonna absolutely if you're gonna go there and be like you picked on clark i I, you shouldn't have done that whatever let's let's talk let's let's go through this let's let's figure let's figure out why you're so mad and that i could have seen it but the fact that he just goes back and is like i could throw you into the sun but i'm not i'm just gonna embarrass you because for some reason i've developed this like insane level of vanity after time traveling all these times or whatever he i barely (laughs) remember the second movie so it's interesting. Like I said, it never bothered me. I, I guess where I land on this is that if he is being a bit of a of a jerk here, and I, it, there's probably a fair argument that he is, I'm okay with that because he doesn't need to be infallible. I kind of like the idea that maybe, yeah, there is a little bit of this hubris at play and he was em- embarrassed and, and, and beaten up by this guy in front of Lois and now he wants to teach him a lesson. Teaching him a lesson, yes, in a very different way than we would expect. As you were talking about, what you would expect Superman to do and having a conversation with him. I'm thinking about one of the stories, I think it was by, I want to say it was by Brad Meltzer in Action Comics 1000. It's the one where Superman goes to the guy whose car he smashes on the cover of Action Comics number one, right? <laughs> yeah. And essentially helps him and finds out what his what his deal is. Something like that, again, and through a modern lens, I think is is more what we would expect. But I'm okay with this. If it Even if it is a bit of fallibility, I'm okay with that. And I also... Whenever we talk about the Christopher Reeve interpretation, you know, I always talk about how in that version and in keeping with the era of comics that he was this God living among men, not a man with the powers of a God, as I like to draw that distinction. He's a God among men and Clark is this disguise. And when he loses his or he gives up his powers earlier in the movie, there's nothing there because he's just Superman. And so I kind of like the idea that he goes back as Clark because he could have gone back as mm. Superman, whether he still threw this guy around or he sat him down, but he goes back as Clark. Like it's a victory that Clark needs to have. Yeah. And so I really, I like it. Now, all that being said, are you guys current on Superman and Lois? No, 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 but please but feel free to spoil it's okay. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've talked about it before, so I'll be real quick, but there is a modern take on the diner scene of Clark confronting a bully in the third season of Superman and Lois. And it is, I think the, the, perfect version of this where he puts the guy in his place and he's firm and he's direct, but he's still kind Mm. and considerate. And the guy's daughter is working there and he's very mindful of that, but he's still the ultimate badass. It's one of these days we'll do an episode of like top 10 Superman moments and that'll be on there for me. Like that's probably my favorite moment from that show. So even if you Mm -hmm. just look up Superman and Lois season three diner scene and you just watch that, so good. It's so good. So look, all of these things kind of build upon each other. Mm. And I think that kind of shows taking the foundation, maybe have a scene like that. And, and yeah, I think making a track with how we understand the character today. I really like the idea of what Ralph said about putting, uh, 
Superman through his paces of having him travel back in time repeatedly and being unable to save John. And then he has like a, a Homelander from the boys moment where he's like, I'm going to be a little petty. And that's why he goes back to that diner and, and, and ruins that guy's day because deep down <laughs> something snapped and it hasn't come to the surface yet. So, you know, you can draw a, another narrative. I'm sure there's things in Superman three and four that'll get you there. Now, Mike, I don't know if you'll have much on this one since I know you said you are not as well versed with Superman two, but Superman 2, the theatrical cut versus the Donner cut. Now, we've done two episodes on Digging for Kryptonite about this. Uh, our buddies at All-Star Superfan, they did an episode on this as well. Then they did a follow-up episode that I contributed to where I kind of gave my take. So we've talked about this a lot, but do you guys have a, a feeling about which is the the better version of Superman 2? I didn't know there were two versions until you told me there was. Um, I, I think... Uh, I think when it came out, I was kind of like, oh, okay, that's pretty cool. And then, I, I don't know, like immediately blocked it out. I, I, I've never seen the Donner cut of Superman 2. Fair enough. I, I've, I've given my take before, so I'll just say real quick. I think that the best version of Superman 2 is a hypothetical cut that combines the best of both versions and that we would never see unless a fan did it. But the Donner cut reinstates scenes between Clark and Jor-El that thematically and narratively, I feel really tie the two movies together. They feel far more of a piece than the theatrical versions do. So I think for that alone, I, I really gravitate towards the Donner cut. But in putting that cut together, and this is, was his choice and I respect that. And I can only imagine, you know, to have the opportunity to go back and put together as complete a version as he could. I understand the pull of that, but he was he did not use any more Lester footage than he absolutely, and I mean absolutely, had to. So that meant that there was a scene between Lois and Clark that was from the screen test that they used in there. And it, it just feels so out of place. Yeah. So it's kind of more of this curious experiment that you're watching as opposed to a fully fully formed, fully finished piece. And he kept his original ending of Clark reversing time. So he, you, know, you watch the two movies back to back and it's like, this is all this guy does is reverses time. So I don't think it's the better version. If I could only watch one, I probably would watch the theatrical cut. But those Clark and and Jor-El scenes are so good. There's a, and in this edit, even even in the Lester footage, they really pulled back on the more slapsticky tone and comedy. And so again, tonally, it feels more in keeping with the original. So I think the best version is a combination. But I definitely recommend watch. It's fascinating. It really mm -hmm. is fascinating to watch. This is a big one. This is is one that you see people making lists and comparing lists all the time. This could be its own episode, but we'll do kind of a, a condensed version of this. When we're talking about depictions of these characters in other media, and and I will include animation in here, in, in fairness, although that <laughs> widens the pool that we have to choose <laughs> from, so that make it harder. But best Superman, best Lois, best Lex. Where Where do you guys land on this? All right. Uh, I mean, Michael Rosenbaum, best Lex for sure. Uh, best Lois. I'm going to need some time. You guys got to, you got to get, you can't just leave this all on me right now. <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, all right. We'll go. Well, let's do, all right. Let your best Lex, Mike. I, if we're including animation, then it's Clancy Brown. No questions asked. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't realize we we're including animation. Live action, I would say Rosenbaum. I, I, I love him. Uh, he was one of the reasons I stuck with Smallville as long as I did until my favorite Lois showed up. Um, but uh, if we're including animation, no one beats Clancy Brown. The very last episode when he defeats Darkseid is 
something I go back to whenever I have a down five minutes. Clancy Brown is tremendous, but but for me, even including animation, it's still Rosenbaum. Big mm. surprise. Mm. All right, mm. so that's my that's my favorite Lex. All right, are you ready for Lois now, Ralph? Yeah, I really love the duo on Superman and Lois for Mike Clark and Lois. Like they're just they're, like I agree with you. Like when he gets so excited about the fair food, it's so like real. Like it, you, you, he made Superman and Clark real to me, and I think that's more so than you know, um, Tom Welling, who we didn't get to see really as Superman, and you know, uh, even you know, big screen renditions. I really love the Superman and Lois duo. So Bitsy Tulloch and Tyler Hecklin. So that that they're your number one, Clark and Lois. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the animated series, like, without saying that's what I grew up on, but watching it in the real world, like, those two are fantastic. I hear you. I am a tremendous fan of that show and of the two of them, and I, I've i never been happier to be wrong. Because, uh, Mike, <laughs> when we talked about Superman and Lois, when it was about to come out, we watched the trailer, and we talked about the pilot, and I was so skeptical just because of my feelings about the Arrowverse at the time and what we had seen of them in the Arrowverse was fine. But I said, I don't know that I, that they could, this can sustain a show. And then the show ended up just being its own thing and absolutely gorgeous. So no, I, t- I totally respect uh, that pick. What about you, Mike? Where Erica Durant's for Lois? Oh yeah, no, Erica Durant's uh, or Durant's or however you pronounce it. She's, she's my favorite Lois. Uh, she was after Rosamond left. She was my favorite part of Smallville just in general. I could watch her, uh, France around, be Lois, uh, get into shenanigans. I think there was an episode where she became the vigilante stiletto, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, but when it comes to Superman, I'm I'm with Ralph Tyler Hecklin. Um, he he nailed it. I, I think Chris Reeves is great, and uh, I like the guy from Superman Returns, especially in the other Arrowverse shows. But Tyler was the first one where I was like, oh, I I really like you. Like there was that episode. Uh, that scene, excuse me, in the pilot where he shows up wearing the Golden Age costume. He says, my mom made it for me, but he's smiling when he says it. And I'm like, okay, well, you got me there. And then the scene in the pilot where his he's talking to his sons who don't yet know that he is Superman. And one of them says, well, I never choose Superman when I play the video game. He's so boring. And you see Tyler's reaction to that. And I, I tell you, I fell in love with him. Like that made me relate to Superman in a way no other adaptation ever did. And from then on, uh, it's like, you no, know, Ty- Tyler Hecklin is Superman. If he wants to be in a movie, wants to be in anything else, I, I support him. All right. Two for Tyler. All right. This this will surprise people. I, I love Erica Durant as Lois. I love, love, love. But by a hair, I got to give it to Terry Hatcher for our best Lois. She was nice. so good. And especially over these past few years of going back and rewatching a fair amount of Lois and Clark, the new adventures of Superman. It's like, I, she was just firing on all cylinders. So she, she is my number one Lois. Now, as far as Clark slash Superman, I guess this is its own debate because for me, it is Tom Welling. It, it is Tom Welling, even though he never, he never physically wore the costume. <laughs> Uh, but he he was that character. He was that character for 10 years. And when I think about the character, that's immediately what I go to. At the same time, I think if we're really talking the sort of platonic ideal of the character represented on screen, and especially if we're talking the, the character from the page brought to life on screen, it is Christopher Reeve, I think. There's something absolutely magical about that performance. So I, I don't say any of this to sell that short, but I'm not, I I, like you guys, I have a lot of history with the Reeve series and a lot of love and appreciation, but it didn't 
make as strong an impression on me as I know it did for other people, certainly for the people who were watching it in the theater as it was coming out, and even for other people in our generation who watched it at home, but it just hit them differently. I didn't have that fully. So I, when you were talking about that earlier, I, I definitely identify with that. And yeah, so my number one would, would be Tom Welling, but with a very, very honorable mention. We referenced the television series Smallville a lot around here, and there's one Smallville rewatch podcast that's always at the top of my queue. Always Hold On to Smallville, hosted by our pal, Zach Moore. Zach and his guests bring tremendous insight, passion, and humor as they discuss each and every episode of the series that ushered in the renaissance of superhero TV. Listen to Always Hold On to Smallville wherever you get podcasts, and keep an eye out for the other shows under the Always Hold On to banner, including Arrow, DC's Legends of Tomorrow, Superman and Lois, and Star Wars. Aw Yeah Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, a.k.a. my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have kids and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join Aw Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit awyeahcomics.com and follow Aw Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Say it with me now. Aw Yeah! Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and under new ownership since 2020, Moose sells a wide selection of comics from every publisher and time period, along with action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany the next time you're in the Garden State, and be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. All right, I want to shift a little bit to some core relationships here. Now, I mean, I could probably guess your answers to this, again, given our our age, our generation, the stories that we came up with. But but at the same time, Mike, I know you're a big fan of the Golden Age. Ralph, I know you like the New 52. We did a whole episode on that. Ma and Pa Kent, dead or alive? Mike? Alive. Yeah, alive. I, um, I didn't even realize that they weren't alive uh, in much of the pre-crisis continuity until, until I was a, a, a much older fan. I just assumed they had always been there. Uh, cause that's, that's what I came up on. I, I never understood why, you know, they kind of stole the uncle Ben origin of, of killing off John. I was like, he's already lost so much. I don't know that he needs to lose that much more. Uh, once he realizes he's alone in the world, that's enough of a gut punch. Let the guy have his, his parents. They're wonderful people. I think that the two, the two arguments that I've come across for why Ma and Pa should be dead. I don't, I don't subscribe to these, but th these are the arguments that I've heard. So one is that there is this, I guess, sense of loneliness uh, that some fans seem to want to be part of Superman's character and his development. And I mean, I guess I understand that to a point in that, yes, he lost his homeworld, but it was a world he never knew. So this is one that resonates more and might drive him more. I, I don't know. I think that's one of the arguments. The other has been made by Mark Wade himself in numerous places, including on this podcast, the idea that it infantilizes Clark if he can go to Jonathan and Martha and ask for help for advice. Once again, I, I don't I don't agree with that, but I think those <laughs> those are the arguments. I mean, Ralph, I want to toss it to you. What, what's your take on this? Um, if When we take the toys out of the toy box, both need to be alive. And both need to be alive for as long as possible, but Jonathan has to go midway and Martha has to go before it ends. And that's how I feel about like the scope of it. 
but I just like that aspect of it. I like the helplessness that he has to feel with, you know, Jonathan's death. I think it has to be a natural death. I think it has to be of age or a heart attack or something or a disease or it, Jonathan's death has to be a natural thing that Clark cannot interfere with or fix. And then same thing with Martha, but near the very end of her life when she's supposed to go and it should not be in a tornado ever, ever, <laughs> ever. All right. <laughs> well, that's actually, but you bring up an important point here because I was looking at them as a unit, but you're right. And, and in terms of what we've often seen, we do often have that, that moment of Jonathan going first, uh, do you, so I guess there haven't been many instances. Usually when Jonathan goes, it is at that formative point in Clark's life and part of that marking the end of his childhood and the beginning of the next stage of his journey. The main deviation from that that comes to mind is during the Jeff Johns run in Action Comics right before the whole new Krypton storyline where, where Jonathan dies. And so that's yeah. Clark dealing with that as an adult. Between, I loved that yeah. one. Yeah. yeah. I like I, Jonathan can stay for as long as like is narratively necessary, I think. But I just think that he has to go, whether it's a transition out of, you know, teenagerhood into young adulthood or young adulthood into adulthood or, you know, just as an adult, I think he has to deal with, you know what I mean? I think that his first time really failing with someone close with him should be with Jonathan. And I think there should be like when Superman has to start like questioning himself leading into, you know, something else that we may have read today, like leading into <laughs> that, like that moment should come after Jonathan has passed. Like that has to rock his world that he can't do anything about it. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say, this might just be my, um, how much I loved the Duke boy on a uh, Smallville and them having that conversation. Cause those were, those were always so good. Um, but I love watching Clark go out into the world and have a series of escalating experiences that no person who's ever lived on earth has had before. And when he goes home to this farm, there are two people there who are ready to talk to him about this stuff that they have no frame of reference for, but they know you are my son. You've done a thing and I'm going to help you the best I can. And John's great at that because he'll be the first person to tell you, I don't see a reason to have left my hometown. I like it here. These are my friends. These are my family. This is everything else. But you, you met God, right? You met him. You, you absolutely, you met him. You had tea. You, he let you read the book of destiny and now you're back here. Now you're talking to me about it. I have to help you process that. And I love that. And I always loved those moments on Smallville where it was like, oh, cool. You went to the moon. I'm never going to do that. But again, I want to talk you through it because I want to make sure that you know that there's a grounding here in this place that raised me and allowed me to raise you. So I, I just like it that they're there. I'm not arguing with Mark Wade, who wrote every Superman story that I really like. So please don't, uh, you know, block me on social media that I do not use Mr. Wade. But uh, no, to, to me, I like it when they're home. I love the episode. Uh, of Justice League where John Jones doesn't have anywhere to go for Christmas and Clark takes him home and Ma and Pa are almost mocking him for how much he loves Christmas and Santa Claus and everything else. And to me, I was like, nope, I like that. I like that a lot. Me too. I mean, that's that's where my, my mind and my heart always go. And yes, informed in large part by those Triangle Era comics, which reintroduced the whole mythology and, and had the Kents alive. Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, gave us a great and I think underrated take on Jonathan and Martha. And rather than infantilizing him, I think it humanizes him and it gives yep. him this outlet. 
And yes, there's Lois, but this is a different angle. And also too, I think depending on where we are in the story, if there's a point in time where he's not yet confiding in Lois, this creates an, an avenue to get some insight into the character. Ralph, to your point, and I, I have wrestled with this because I do see the value. One of the most impactful scenes in Superman the movie is Clark at the grave of Jonathan and the line, yeah. all these powers, and I, I couldn't save him. So there is something very meaningful and valuable about him learning that lesson, the limitations of his powers. And then I guess one argument in favor of Jonathan passing, yes, it teaches Clark that lesson, but then, because we always think about Jonathan giving him those talks. And then if Jonathan's not there, that does create a lane for Martha and allows her to step up. So, you know, there is something to be said for that. Um, I mean, and now kind of shifting to the, the very current modern comics, one of the things that I'm very happy about that we have Jonathan and Martha back, and now you have Lois and Clark raising John. Now you have the three generations of Kent men. And now John Kent has his grandpa. So there's, I think it's just anytime you can create new dynamics to explore. And I guess maybe ultimately it depends what medium we're talking about. If we're talking about the ongoing, an ongoing story, I think having them there creates more potential. If we're talking more of a limited or one-off or something like that, where there wouldn't really be room for those conversations on the farm anyway, well, then maybe having one or both of them meet their end could could be of more value. Yeah, I always like the idea, to, to Ralph's point, Ralph Ralph's absolutely 100% with the the timeline like there is um there is a version of martha as a widow on that farm who's desperately trying to hold it together for for her son and and who does a really admirable job so there there's tons of great stories there um you know there's stories too where he'll bring people who don't have anywhere else to go there like i think she helps raise Kara or Connor in, in different versions. And a lot of times she's shown doing that by herself. And I, I love that. I love the idea that this, you know, Midwestern uh, farmer can raise gods, right? I think there's something wonderfully mythic about that. I love the idea of someone randomly stumbling upon the Kent farm and you have crypto and streaky and all these other people and these like these wild, crazy Xavier Institute level craziness. And uh, at the center is, is Martha being like, oh, do you need help? Do you, do you need to use the bathroom or have, use a phone or something? Like, please come on in. Don't mind the, the pantheon that's living in the barn. <laughs> yeah, no, I like that. I, I like that a lot. On this note of relationships, I want to talk a bit about the love life of, of one Clark Kent. Now, I want to frame this specifically because I assume we are probably in agreement that if Superman is to end up with someone, we agree that it's Lois. Does anyone disagree? Okay. At the same time, I, I guess maybe the way I would frame this is, is there, is there any value or validity in exploring a different kind of dynamic? Like what we got, the, the first thing that really comes to mind is what we got in the New 52, where rather than going down the road of Lois and Clark again, we had this romantic pairing between Superman and Wonder Woman. And I do think, I mean, I do get the sense this is something that fans are a bit split on. The New 52 generally, and this in particular. And let me ask you first, Ralph, because you you came on and we talked about the New 52. And I'm sure we touched on that, though. I don't remember exactly right now what, what your take was on that. But where where do you land on that Superman Wonder Woman? It, it makes sense, you know, if you're telling it fresh that they would have a fling. But like... Ending up together, they're I think they're at their core to like Wonder Woman will stab someone with a sword, and that will not be something that Clark can come home to, you know, and be okay with. I feel like it's not 
a safe Wonder Woman's not a safe space for Clark Kent. It's a, it's if you're if you want to become you know the Homelander Superman or kind of a darker Superman or someone who might snap or someone who can start to distance himself from his humanity. Sure, go with Wonder Woman, but that's not going to be what Clark Kent can go home to. That's where Clark Kent goes to get put in a grave, you know, for Superman to be the primary persona. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said, if you're telling the story fresh, and this yeah. is what I come back to, right? I would never advocate for a story where Lois and Clark split up and he starts dating Diana. But if you're doing a reboot or quasi reboot like the new 52, if you're starting a new line of comics or original graphic novels like Earth One, or if DC ever fully pulls the trigger on an ultimate style imprint, and you are starting from the beginning, I do think there is value in exploring other pairings before we, we hopefully ultimately get to Lois. And I think the new 52 showed the the value in that. That was actually one of the things I was very pleasantly surprised by reading those issues. I was like, oh, this is actually pretty interesting and fresh. And if what's the other option? Starting from scratch with Lois and Clark, and we've already had years of them as a married couple. I, I don't I don't yeah. know how much that would have added. So the Superman Wonder Woman pairing, again, I think was was additive to the story. But again, in that specific context, I do, I do want to be clear about that. What do you think, Mike? Yeah. Um, in the stories where Lois has uh, been killed or otherwise removed, like in Kingdom Come or in uh, you know Frank Miller's The Dark Knight, um, both cases where he does end up with Superman, I always liked it. Uh, but, but Ralph makes a really, really good point. Um, it's Superman who ends up with her. And it's it's not necessarily Clark and and Kingdom Come actually makes this a major plot point where um, she she decides to turn away from her violent side, which Ralph pointed out really well, and uh, actually gives him back his glasses and says, "You you need to be Clark. You can't live in this world as just Superman. This is too much. You need that. You need that release." And you know, Kingdom Come again, <laughs> Mister Wade famously ends with them all sitting there and realizing they're going to start a family, and it's it's Clark and Diana. And uh, I always like that. But again. Lois has to be out of the picture because from action comics, number one onwards, it's going to be Clark and Lois. You know, we even saw an infinite, uh, excuse me, crisis and infinite earths, whole multiverse can collapse. They're going to survive. They're going to be the next ones that are they're there for the next multiverse. But if they're gone, it's an else worlds, what have you. I like it uh, to, to Ralph's point. I like the idea that in the dark Knight uh, universe, whatever you want to call it, Wonder Woman's more aggressive nature actually allows Clark to go down a dark path that he has to redeem himself from. I know there's um, uh, there's a lot of fan debate on Superman's portrayal by Frank Miller in general, but I always liked that because I always thought it was Frank the Tank turning things around from the way he portrayed him in the original Dark Knight series where he's just, you know, the Gipper's foot soldier. Um, and Wonder Woman's a big part of that because Wonder Woman's like, I don't take orders from anyone. Uh, I know the gods and they said I'm doing the right thing. You can do just as much as I can. And now we have a daughter who's more powerful than both of us. We have to set a good example for her. Right on. Well said. There's another, I guess I would maybe someone call this a, a debate or a divide, but I look at this one as maybe more between creators and fans and in a very specific instance. So way back on, I think it was episode four of this podcast <laughs> back in 2020, once again with Rich Roney, we did an episode on Superman 2000, the rejected pitch by Grant Morris and Mark Wade. Mark Miller and Tom Pyre. And part of that pitch, and a lot of the aspects of that ended up popping up in All-Star Superman and, and other stories that, that Morrison in particular did. But one of the ideas was that they were going to undo 
the marriage between Lois and Clark and Lois's knowledge of, of Clark's secret identity. And I was rereading that pitch again. And of course, Mike, I couldn't help but think of you because as they were describing this one last day that Lois and Clark get to spend together, I, I couldn't help but think of Spider-Man one more day. And I know that's your favorite character. Yeah. That's a whole can of worms in its own conversation. But I, <laughs> but I, but I guess I'll say for me, I mean, I'm very glad that we, we did not go down that road, but for both you guys, and it's, I mean, both of you, huge Morrison fans, anytime we do Morrison, it's you, one, one or both of you who are on the show. So, uh, and again, the other creators involved, especially Mark Wade, we're all fans of. So like, how do you, how does something like that land with you? That idea of, of undoing the marriage and, and the knowledge of the secret. I mean, again, I'm not a professional writer, but I would think you get more narrative conflict out of her not knowing right? Like that's how it is in most versions. Like they don't usually, she doesn't usually find out until they're going to the next step. And for the longest time I would have said, there's no reason for her to know unless, unless we're getting towards the end until the new Superman and Lois show where they have a family and it's really engaging and it's really interesting. But that middle period where they're just a happily married couple, it's like, well, that's kind of boring. And, and it was boring for, for Spider-Man too, even though that's where I came in. But once they got broken up and once they had to deal with all this stuff, it, um, it just it makes it more interesting because there's other things that can be uh, brought in. There's other things that can be done. There's just you know there's just more uh, conflict on a month to month basis. But I will say I have never read a good way of putting that genie back in the bottle. In Superman 2000, it was something about going into her brain and removing just those memories. Because memories are chemicals. Like Morrison had this whole thing about memories are chemicals. And then I think it was Brainiac who poisoned that chemical. Yeah. So that, that was the whole idea. And then I yeah. think it was ultimately Mixius Pitalik who Superman turned to yeah. in order to have that removed. And yeah. Yeah. Spider-Man should be making deals with the devil. And I, I don't know that that would have landed that well. Um, but I, I like it the way it was done in the new 52 as well. And I think we're going to get to this later, but uh, you know, they were married and then flashpoint happens. And not only are they not married, but they're both in other relationships and we know they'll get there one day, but we see them as young people going, going on their way. So I don't know. I, uh, I'm very much a proponent of them, of, of Lois knowing the secret and, and then being together. And I've, I, I don't know. I mean, I came into Spider-Man during that time too, when he was married and I, it never felt you know, the stale or like the characters felt older to me. I, I don't know. I, at the same time, I guess what it, a lot of it comes down to, and this is essentially what we're saying about the Superman Wonder Woman of it all. If, if there's a scenario where they're not together or their relationship is undone, it's, you know, to what end? I feel like if we're just going back to the dynamic of her, of him pulling the wool over her eyes and she doesn't know, I, I don't know how much mileage you get out of that. If you use that to, I don't know, do you bring in Lana and make her potentially a viable adult, you know, a companion for him. I don't know. You do something with one. So, I mean, I guess it's like, you know, to, to what end, but I don't know for me, it's, I, I, I love the two of them together. You, you also, I'd like to point out, you, you can make new characters, right? Like oh, there was yeah. a, there was a period of time when Lana was created and everyone was like, who's, who's this? Oh, well he hasn't met Lois yet. He needs a high school girlfriend. It's like, you know, if, 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 if they're going to reset the story or if it's a new story, and, you know, there's, they're going back to that dynamic of, you know, Clark loves Lois, Lois loves Superman, Superman is trying to be Clark. That's great. And that's, that's something really strong that Siegel and Schuster pretty much introduced. Um, but, you know, you can always introduce new people. Like they, 
I hate going back to this, but they did this in Spider-Man. Like once they were broken up, it was like, you know, Peter was able to go out and, and date and you see how terrible he is at it. And he keeps going back to MJ and MJ is like, I can't give you advice on how to, you know, go date other people. It's like, that's not how this is going to work. Uh, and it could be the same thing there. I mean, how infuriated would Lois be if Clark, the man she keeps dismissing, shows up with someone who likes Clark? And would he even like that? Would he even like someone who really likes Clark? Because you know, the argument could be made that's not really who he is all the time. So, you know, you again, narrative mileage. I'm not a writer, but I would think that you would need that to tell stories month in and month out. Lana should always be the one who got away. You know, I feel like Lana should be either, you know, kind of in that space of like the one he left behind or the one that got away. There should be that distance between them where they are friends and they are able to have, once again, with Superman, healthy relationship and a healthy friendship where they everything is understood between them, but those feelings are still there. You know, they he obviously cares about her very much and she cares about him very much. And it's I think, you know, depending on certain tellings, she's one of the first people he ever tells that he has these abilities outside of his, you know, poor familial group. So like that's like that's huge and that should be there should be that longing that can never be acted upon because they are distanced in some emotional capacity yeah that's fair i i think actually with the new 52 i really liked the dynamic that they landed on there between clark and lana at least what i saw because they they seem to be in a very healthy place so here's where i i guess i'll disagree a little bit where i I don't really like that she's either the one who got away or or the one he left behind because the one he left behind that feels very much like what we got in the burn era and and the triangle era and it, she was always just seemed unhappy she settles for Pete Ross you never really get the sense that she's totally fulfilled so I don't I wouldn't necessarily want that for her but I also don't necessarily want it to be that she's the one who who got away and of course, my mind goes to the end of uh, that episode in Smallville season eight when she's emanating kryptonite and yeah. Clark's <laughs> crying on the floor of the barn. It's like, I don't want that either. I like the idea of them having a relationship, sharing a true love, him confiding in her and being really like the first one that he confides in. But I, I like the idea of it being more of a mutual parting of the ways that then grows into mm. this mature adult friendship. Because I feel like the one who got away or the one he left behind, risky in, in either direction. And I don't know how well it serves either of them. I, I always hated during the Triangle era that she ended up married to Pete because it's like, I haven't read many Silver Age comics, but you in no continuity would Lois end up with Jimmy Olsen. And that's the relationship. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. And you see how unhappy she is when he becomes vice president. I think we talked about that in an earlier episode. And I know I'm a broken record, but I always go back to, to Dragon Ball where it was like the Lana character on that show ended up with the Zod character. So if I got to write action comics for one day, or excuse me, for one issue, that's what would happen. Zod would have his redemption arc, and he and Lana would 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 move to uh, I don't know the suburbs or whatever. Wow, that's that's that my would drive. That would break Superman. I feel like that would break Clark in some like even if Zod is redeemed as you know Vegeta, <laughs> like 
That would something I feel like would you would have like that Homelander look in his eyes yeah, looking good. at them every time. Yeah, I, I like that. <laughs> I like them all being, you know, imagine them being out for Hibachi for like Lana's birthday or something. And Zod is just like, you know, twirling her hair or something. And she's happy. He's he's not going to do anything. He's completely redeemed. He's done his full Vegeta thing. But they are happy. And Clark would be uncomfortable by that. It's like when Lex becomes president. You know, Clark mm-hmm. loses his mind. He goes out and he starts punching asteroids because he knows Lex <laughs> didn't fix the election. People actually went out and voted for him. And it would be the same thing here. Like, he didn't do anything wrong, but his ex-girlfriend is now dating his worst enemy and they are genuinely happy. And I would love that. <laughs> I, I think that would drive him crazy and that would you'd get some good stories out of that. Plus, could you imagine the Justice League gets trapped in the Phantom Zone and some supervillain shows up on Earth and... General Zod, dressed like he just walked out of a Coles, goes up into the upper atmosphere and is like, you you don't want to do this. You absolutely do not want to do this. <laughs> you know, Superman may not be around right now, but I, I will put all of you in the ground. I will put this entire armada into the ground. Just turn around and go home. So that that's that's my headcanon. Lana I'm, Zod, I'm, that's I'm, I'm on board. Yeah. I'm on board. Yeah. I like Lana with John Henry Irons. I feel like that's a, Ooh, a suitable pair. Oh, like but we've yeah. had that. They've done that in the comics. And well, I don't want to spoil it. But yeah, I mean, that that's a dynamic we've seen. I, I like that. So, oh, I, I guess one of the reasons I bring this up, and I don't mean to keep coming back to Smallville, but at the same time, it is very formative. And this is something, I don't know if you guys were active on the like the Krypton site forums back in the day, but there, there, I, there was a contingent of fans who were advocating for Clark and Lana to end up together. And I think it was a mix of fans who didn't know the comic book lore. And if you just watch the show, <laughs> they're the, the couple that's set up. Or fans who did know the comic book lore, but felt the show had deviated in other ways. And why couldn't they deviate here? I certainly never felt that. I thought it was important that the show demonstrated why they, they wouldn't end up together. I, I think just what's so interesting to me is you look at the direction that Arrow went in with Oliver and Felicity. You watch that show, and of course, you anticipate like the comics. They'll ultimately end up with Dinah and or Laurel, and that's not what the show did. I mean, that show made a major, major deviation, and then they later brought in another Black Canary character, and you figure, all right, maybe we'll sort of circle back. Nope, it was Oliver and Felicity to the end, and I guess I'm just grateful that Smallville took place and and aired when it did because part of me is like, I don't know. Well, first of all, I don't think there would have been an Arrowverse without Smallville, but, but if there were and Smallville were like an Arrowverse show, part of me is like, I don't know. Does the show end with Clark and Lana? He, he also married the blonde hacker best friend on that show as well. He sure he? did. Like on Smallville, there, yeah. Yeah. There was a black canary character, but she was only seen once or twice. He, he, he married Chloe Sullivan. My, my heart goes out to the hardcore Green Arrow fans, because you've had now two live action depictions that I would argue in both instances were successful and brought the character to life in a, in a great way. Yet on that particular front, twice now, like both shows did essentially the, the same, same thing. thing. Yeah. Yep. I don't know. I, I don't think, I don't think it's a problem to think about Clark and Lana together because I think for a large portion of the Silver and Bronze Age, that was on the table. And I think that gave you a lot of good conflict when Ellen Moore did whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow. Like they, you know, the the story opens with like, well, who's who's he going to choose? And he chooses Lois because, of course, he's going to choose Lois. And 
you know, look what that drives Lana to do. And that's amazing. So, oh, I mean, it's a tragedy, but it's like, again, I keep thinking about it as, as, as a great moment for, for Lana Long. So it's, you know, they're going to end up together. Well, no, no, probably not. But, you know, you can do something with that. She doesn't just have to, you know, disappear when he goes off to Metropolis. Yeah. And actually, you know, as we re- very recently did the new Krypton story from the comics and there she came back, she was a mentor to Supergirl and she took over as the business editor at the Daily Planet because she had been running uh, LexCorp after the whole vice president, uh, you know, journey for, for Pete Ross. So yeah, I like, I, I do think there is a place for her, not necessarily in a romantic capacity for Clark, but there, I think there is a place for her. But anyway, I always go back to that Smallville debate because I remember that at the time of people, the Klana fans, like very adamant about the two of them ending up together. So even though I would have preferred that to resolve in a more satisfying way on the show, I'm glad at least they put that to bed and showed why Lois was the better match for him. A couple of, I don't know, what do we call these? Clothing questions or appearance? We already talked about hair, but this is one of the ones I posed to you guys. Lex in the business suit versus Lex. I mean, we could add a third layer here of that you know, purple jumpsuit or whatever we want to call it, but Lex in the business suit versus Lex in the armor or both, I suppose. Where, where do you guys land on this? How about you, Ralph? Both. And I think that he should wear the purple suit whenever he's doing like, you know, Legion of Doom stuff. Like that's his like special occasion purple suit. And I can just hear like characters on Harley Quinn, like back talking behind like him being <laughs> like, what well, he's wearing that outfit again. Should we tell him? Like, it's not really good. <laughs> like, Right on. Yeah. yeah I, I always viewed the battle suit as just, um, you know, the, the, in the Lex tower, there's gotta be, you know, a giant room similar to the bat cave. Right. And he's got his, you know, I got to walk on the ocean floor. I got a suit that can do that. I got to fly in space. I got a suit that can do that. I got to, you know, explore the, the underworld. I got a suit that could do that because that's what Lex does. That's what his power is. He can come up with anything that he needs to, if he thinks it's going to ruin Superman's day, he just never does it in an altruistic way. You know, he'll, he'll use the GDP of a small country to build a battle suit to punch Superman for 30 seconds, but, uh, you know, he'll, he'll make sure that everyone in that building is working a minimum wage. You know, if you had asked me this a few years ago, I would have said, no, no battle suit. And, and because of what I grew up reading. And also I think this idea that I like Lex challenging him solely on uh, an intellectual or ideological level, not that he needs to literally fight him physically, but I, and this is one of the things that I've really come to appreciate about that period of time from maybe the the early to mid 2000s forward where you had had this major shift post crisis and we were firmly in Lex as the evil businessman and then in in that later period you saw a lot of those pre crisis elements coming back but blending with what we had gotten post crisis and so I always go back to that Superman Batman public enemies arc where Lex has been this successful uh, businessman becomes president, loses it, and dons the the suit, and they fight. And it's like, wow, like that kind of gives you the the full arc of, of this guy. So I I think I do land on the side of of both now, and I, I kind of like some kind of having somewhat of a progression as well. And I like what Ralph said because you know Lex is the de facto leader of super villainy in the DCU the same way Superman is the de facto leader of all the superheroes. So when he has to deal with Vandal Savage or Ra's al Ghul or one of these 
immortals who has unfathomable power. I do like the idea that he can build a suit and be like, I built this in a cave from a bunch of scraps and now I'm going to punch you in the mouth because I can, <laughs> not that I can't outthink you or whatever else, but you know, schoolyard rules, you know, I'm not just Lex Luthor genius billionaire philanthropist. I am also the guy who uh, can take you down if need be. So I, I, I like it from that point of view, if he has to deal with the Legion of doom or whatever. Right on. All right. Red trunks. Yay or nay, Ralph. Um, either I, I, that can come or go for me. I, you know, you can even have it designed where like the red connects down further and there's lines like going down the side. Um, I think we should add red suspenders, you know, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding about that, but no, I, either way works for me. The, the, I, the blue with the red belt or just, you know, I, I, it doesn't matter. The red trunks are classic. If you want to do the classic thing, great. If you want to do a modern thing, as long as they're, you know, it has to be the primary colors or if he's doing the black suit, but I, I fall either way for it. It's, you know, I'm, I feel bad being apathetic towards it in a sense, but I don't think it's something so serious that we should be debating about. I think there's deeper things about the character that need to be explored and talked about more so than, you know, his clothing choices change it all the time. Then if you know what I mean, like really frustrate the fans and have him have different ones in that he wears for different issues. Hmm. About you trunks, hundred percent. No question asked. I I think every, (laughs) every time they've gotten rid of the trunks. Oh, and I'm with Ralph. You want to change the costume constantly go at it because there are more, great artists and great designers working today than there have ever been. You want to let them go crazy. I think that would be great. Uh, certainly they'd allow, they'd be allowed to sell more action figures, but no, in my mind, if you're talking about Superman, you're talking about the trunks. And the reason for that is, is every time they've changed that every time they've gotten rid of them, it's been with this undercurrent of, well, we're, we're, we're growing him up. You know, we're, we, you don't wear your underwear on the outside. You don't wear swim trunks. You don't do this, that, and the other thing. This is Kryptonian formal wear. And to me, that always felt flat. It's like, I think at his core, Superman is, you know, he's a children's character and he is dressed ridiculously. And that's how he was designed. And I think that's on purpose. I, I think he's, you know, he's like, he's like Mickey Mouse. He's like Bugs Bunny. He's like any of these other things. Like, I don't understand why you'd want to like adult that up. It's like, <laughs> you want to tell a story about an all powerful guy who who's wrestling with stuff. Well, then he doesn't need a costume because anyone who's going to break into his apartment in the middle of the night is probably not getting out of there. Um, and, but no, to me, it's like, put him in the trunks because every time you get rid of them, it's like, this isn't your dad, Superman. It's like, yeah, all right. I lived through the electric era, you know, just <laughs> put him in the trunks. Stop it. But, but also like in the collective unconscious, he's based on the strong man. Like that's like that image you know, you don't need, he, he could be shirtless, but if he's just wearing the red trunks, you know exactly what he is, you know? Like, I so I, th- in that aspect, I understand, like, if as, like, this, like, figure, it has to be that strong man, because that's what he was based on, is, like, the, you know, you have the strong man who comes out with the big weights, and he's only wearing his little trunks, you know? And that's what, like, that does, that's what that choice was for. It's like this collective unconscious from, like, the 20s where, you know, you're pulling from psychic imagery in that yeah. sense. Yeah, you both, I, I I think I'm with both of you in, in, in certain ways. Like, like Ralph, I mean, I, I'm not, this isn't the hill I'm going to die on. I, I don't feel that strongly and typically haven't. And I think a costume like the Rebirth costume, for example, where you had the red to break up the blue, which I do feel like is the most important aspect of this. I think 
was an effective costume. At the same time, and I just talked about this when we did our Superman Legacy wishlist episode, I have now, very, very recently, <laughs> like in the past few weeks, really come down on the side of, yes, the trunks. For the reason being that, yeah, it is a little silly, but whether you're talking about the character drawn on the page or an actor in the costume, if you can pull that off, I feel like it accomplishes something and overcomes maybe what might be viewed as, as, as silly or whatever you want to call it. So I almost look at it as somewhat of a test and it's like, yeah, this guy, just the character himself, it's like, yeah, he owns it and he can pull it off and can, can make it not silly in, in a way where almost anyone else it would be. So I don't know. I, I really have now come down on the side of the trunks though. Like I said, I, I don't feel I don't feel that strongly. I'll, I'll take it a step further. Um, being the outlier here, it's I I say go for silly. You know, I say I say there's a there's a certain element to that. Like there's a reason that Clark wears primary colors, and it's not just because he's bulletproof. It's like you know he wants to make a symbol. He wants to not only do good uh, and help people, but he wants everyone to know he's doing that. You know, he's not doing this in the shadows. Like when he decides to be Superman, he doesn't wear a mask. He doesn't wear gloves. He wears a cape. You know, he's coming. He flies through the biggest, greatest city we've ever had. Like when he decides to help people, he's got his shield, his brand right there. And you know, the trunks are part of that. It's like, who's wearing bright red trunks, bright red boots, and this beautiful golden symbol? Well, it's Superman. And whether, you know, you, you fall, you fell off a, a a subway platform and he caught you or, you know, he made sure your dog got across the street or, or again, he saved the world from a Thanagarian armada. He, he did it while dressed like that. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with being silly because, you know, when Clark does good, he wants you to, he wants you to know he's doing good and he wants you to do it as well. I want to just keep us moving here. Uh, Ralph, you had brought up my adventures with Superman earlier and I loved, have you watched it, Mike? No. God, it's so good. But awesome. Uh, it's so good, but I remember there was a little bit of there was there was a little bit of discussion uh, online when well I don't want to spoil anything but oh please spoil away but when Lois learns that Clark is Superman which happens relatively early on and I think this sort of sparked this bit of a debate between how she learns the secret and so we've seen different versions of this ultimately for me the sweet spot is she figures it out on her own. And at the same time, Clark decides to tell her because I feel like both, both aspects of that are important. I think if he, if she can't figure it out and he just has to tell her, I feel like it does a disservice to her character. Um, but at the same time, if she just figures it out and, and, and tells him that she knows, I feel like that takes away something from him making that decision to share that part of his life with her. So I kind of like the dual tracks of I'm going to tell her, but she also figures it out. Uh, well, how, how do you feel about that? Like, what do you think, Ralph? I, I think she should always know. I think from that first meeting, she should be as good an investigative journalist that she, you know, puts together. It's almost like the, the Hal Jordan thing in the Green Lantern movie. That's ridiculous where she's like, Hal, I've known you my whole life. <laughs> you know, like I, your, your mask isn't going to help me. There's no mask for Clark Kent. Like he can change himself for other people and he may be able to fool other people, but Lois knows, and she probably, you know, likes the game. Hmm. Uh, no, I, I, I do want her to figure it out, but I think that's her arc because I, again, I always go back to how much I love the triangle where it's like Clark is right there. He works one cube over from you. He hangs out with you when you're not at work. And just like Lex refuses 
to think that Clark Kent, the mild-mannered reporter, and Superman, God, are the same individual, you, Lois, also refuse to believe that. Whether subconsciously or not, you refuse to believe that. And that's why Clark's disguise works. Clark's disguise would be useless to anyone else. He's he's trying to win you over because he loves you. So I, I like the idea that she finds out, but at the end, as we're going into Act 3, because one day she's going to wake up and she's going to be like, Ah, oh, he was right there. He was right there. And she'll have evolved as a person. Not that she doesn't. She's incredibly interesting. I mean, she's had her own series. She could have her own series. I mean, she is the world's greatest investigative reporter. She's not afraid to go up against inner gang or terrorists or anything else. Like, she is a really well-defined character on her own. But that's her arc. Like, one day she's going to realize, like, oh, they're the same. And then, you know, to Ralph's point, it's like she may play with him for a little bit. But you know they're going to end up together, and you know they're going to go into the sun together, and that's it. I mean, that's that's mythology. That's that's as as true as anything we've ever come up with as a culture. But to me, it's it's important that she doesn't know at first because that's her arc. You know, I always play that against against Lex in my head, where it's like, well, Lex is never going to figure it out, but you are, and yeah. when you do, you guys are going to be together until the sun burns out. Yeah, I mean, as far as I, I, I do agree that she doesn't know at the outset. Now we have had a couple of modern takes that have gone a different direction, specifically Man of Steel and Smallville, where she is part of the formation of the dual identity. And there is something that I I do find appealing about that, but is it ultimately my preferred version? No. I think you get what mileage you can out of that triangle dynamic, but what I really like about some recent tellings, and my adventures with Superman and Superman and Lois are, I think, the two best and biggest examples I can cite, where it flips where traditionally Lois is infatuated with Superman and doesn't think anything about Clark. And in, in these iterations, she's interested in Clark and not so much with Superman. And I, I kind of like, I, I like that flip, but yeah, I think getting some mileage out of that. And you know, you know the, the idea that Clark initially hides that part of himself, I totally get that. And I think that's a natural, that's why I didn't even put this on the list, but Bendis unmasking Clark to the world, having Clark reveal his secret identity to the world Oh, was I not a fan? <laughs> was I not a fan of that? And and as much as I to- I get the argument, right? Like he's this paragon of truth, and yet he's hiding this part of himself. But he it's it's for a reason, and we all have parts of ourselves that that we don't necessarily share. There's a practical component that he's trying to protect the people closest to him. I always thought it was absurd, absurd in the Bendis run that it's like they have to fortify the Daily Planet. <laughs> like it's all these crazy. Uh, you know, security measures that he can still go to work without his glasses and be a reporter. It's like, it was insane to me. And I also, I just, I like the idea that, yeah, maybe there is a little bit of a, of a, of a dichotomy there. Like he, he, he is lying and there is an element of disguise, but it doesn't take away from the work that he does. So yeah, I'm, I'm firmly in the camp of him having the identity, Lois not knowing initially, getting what mileage you can, but then ultimately having her figure it out while simultaneously he decides to tell her. I always love that end of, of you know, Lois and Clark season two, you know, who's asking Clark or Superman. Like, I lo- like that's, that's kind of the sweet spot for me. All right, we've danced around the Snyder stuff a bit here. Now, here's the thing. We have, I haven't announced yet, but we're, we're we, we've said what we need to say about the DCU as a whole when we did our ranking. But I'm not quite done yet with the Snyder trilogy of movies. And so we have some very special coverage coming up. And in those episodes, we will get into the specifics that I know people have wrestled with, myself included. So letting Jonathan perish in the tornado, the killing of Zod, and and so on. I guess what I really wanted to pose to you guys is more of a bigger picture question, which is, 
I, I feel like for for a lot of fans, there is this this feeling that Snyder fundamentally did not understand the character of Superman. I clearly do not feel that way, but I'm curious, and I feel like Mike. I mean, I I think you might be in that camp, but I could be wrong. But I'm curious to get your your take on that. Um, I mean, I think Superman is a character that is open to all types of interpretation, and I I think that's his strength. That's why he's been in constant publication for 80 years. I think that Zack Snyder has a very well thought out and specific interpretation of the character in his mythology. And I think he loves him. I think he's a fan of his. I don't know if he was before he got the job to do Man of Steel, but I, I, there's clearly something he wants to say about him. Um, I just don't like it. Uh, and that's what I always come back to, where it was like, again, it's open to all these interpretations. My interpretation is that this guy <laughs> does not need to kill someone to know killing is wrong. He wanted to tell a story where that wasn't the case. Great. Some that connected with some people. I don't. No one's ever going to force me to watch the, the trilogy ever again. It just didn't land for me. Um, but also, I will say, Zack Snyder had such a specific interpretation and was to a degree successful with that that it made me sit down and go, "Why is this bothering me so much?" Because if you had asked me in 2013 when Man of Steel came out, I would have said, "Well, I don't. You know, I'm a comic book fan, but I don't read read a lot of Superman books. It's not it's not my cup of tea." So, like, why is this bothering me so much? And it was one of those things where it was like, "Oh, but I, I do have an opinion on this, and I do disagree. I, I don't think I've thought about Superman as much as I have since these movies started coming out. And I have to decide, well, why is this bothering me? And that's when I really started to say, "Well, I do have an opinion on this character, and I do have an interpretation, and I read all of this stuff, and mine is just different than his. Not one thing or the other, but his movies make me angry, and I just don't like being angry when I." consume this stuff i uh i'm I'm pretty much in this camp of i did not like the Zack snyder stuff at first and over time i i i if something i don't if i don't like something i immerse myself in it to understand why and i very much like them i think we got a great version of dc stuff with the trilogy uh, the movies around that, yes, no, depending on which ones. But I think with that trilogy, we got a very well-defined version of like what DC Comics could, ha- you know, a, a version of it, right? And I enjoy watching it. I enjoy the the million-hour Justice League cut very much. So I think the three movies work together really, really well. His versions, not. I, I can't stand the Batman versus Superman theatrical or Joss weeding Justice League. I think that movie is incomprehensible. But that trilogy, I think, works really well. I cannot, because I think that it had bigger reverberations than just being Superman killing somebody. I think in that moment, and especially in our culture as like Americans and questioning, I think all of that kind of in that moment, it, it like broke me in a sense. I feel like <laughs> it, it, it affected reality. Like that was almost like, you know, Superman punching reality and things changing in the multiverse or flash going back in time. I think if there is a universe where Superman finds some way to be redeemable in that moment, we would be in a completely different place in our own reality. And I know that sounds very like massive, but I think that if you have the power of the, your, 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 you have 
this power of using one of these like important images, like psychic images that we all see and everyone knows the S and everyone knows this and what that means. And in that moment, you do something to break it. And I think that it changes things. And I think that's important. And I think that is my overall issue with that trilogy. And I can't reconcile that. I understand it, but I don't think it was good for our reality. Filmmakers and movie fans alike should be sure to attend these film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On To Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and Round Reel in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Take it from an alum of two of them. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. This podcast is an affiliate of BCW Supplies. The next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP to save 10% on your order. That's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions. It helps support the show too. Many of you have already used this code and I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. My last couple of questions here and then we got to wrap this up, but... The, the whole truth, justice in the American way, right, which had been a part of the character for a long time, not since the very beginning, but for a very long time, and then sort of, I think, fell out of use for a while and then was more formally replaced with truth, justice, and a better tomorrow. That's a fan debate that I, I actually, I, I do, I am very passionate about. I did not know that they had replaced it with for a better tomorrow until you told me, and I was very excited about that because I hate, hate more than anything else the, the, the slogan truth justice in the american way because it was Agreed. added you know the the fleischer superman he fights for truth and justice and that is pure that has nothing to do with us that is a higher ideal that is i fight for truth and i fight for justice i do not stand bullies i don't care who they are and especially you know if you are if you are weaker and i could do something about it you bet i'm going to do something about it and this tacking on of the american way i don't know if it was to survive the censorship of the mid 50s i don't know if it was a cold war thing i don't know all the details but i know we added this to everything and superman mm-hmm. got it added to him and i hate it i hate it Agreed. so much and and one of the things that when i really sit down and think about the character that was always the first thing i wanted to get rid of not not because I don't think it has a, a, a place somewhere, but appending it to Superman just seems more limiting. Like, I, I, I hate the scene in Man of Steel, I mentioned this before, where he, when he confronts, I don't remember the character's name, but it's the Martian Manhunter, and he, like, says, you know, well, how do we know you won't hurt us in the future? And it's like, I'm from Kansas. He should have been like, because I told you I'm not going to. And I'm going to show you that over and over and over again until you trust me. Bad people live in Kansas. Like, we, we mythologize ourselves. But the greatest things we could ever do as Americans is own the things we've screwed up on. And I love mm-hmm. the idea that Superman can represent the best things we ever want to do, right? He's a commercial idea created by two people who were in some capacity the son of immigrants. Like, he's already standing up for the best things we've ever told ourselves we want to do. We don't need to put it on there. We certainly don't need to slap it on after he's already become a national icon. So the fact that they've replaced it with something else, the fact that everyone seems to have come around to, to this way of thinking makes me really happy. Maybe I do need to, to pick up some of the current books, but I was so excited when I saw that on there because that was the one of everything you listed that I felt so passionate about and I'm so happy it's gone. Like you, you made my day when, when I found out about that. 
Yeah, everything that Mike just said, 100%. Uh, Truth, Justice, and a Better Tomorrow is, it almost like puts a, like a closure on that end of like CIA manipulating the American mind in the 50s. Like, it's like, we are now like past that. This character is bigger than that. He is everything that we as human beings should be striving towards, even his abilities. Like, that's something that we should be building in our sciences towards that something like everything about Superman is about a better tomorrow, life extension, space travel, all of it, you know, and he's got all of those aspects all tied up into his identity. And I just think that that's a beautiful way to, you know, put an ending on and tightening up that part of the branding. Tightening up. That's the only thing I would add here is that I I'm grateful that we have a new slogan. I mean, I don't know the extent to which you don't even know about it, so I don't know the extent to which it's caught on or what. I'm a bad example though. I, but but no, because I think for a, for a long time, and I always go back to Superman Returns when Perry's barking at the staff and he's like, "What does he does he still stand for? Truth, justice, all that stuff." And I feel like there were other instances where there was a shying away from the American way, probably for all the reasons you guys have hit on, but we weren't at anything else yet. So it was just sort of like swallowing up that last part of it. So now I like that there is something new. And I think it is far more representative of what the character is and that higher ideal, totally. So again, this last note of who, who the disguise is, because we've gotten different takes. We talked about sort of that pre-crisis and Christopher Reeve iteration where Superman is who he is and he disguises himself as Clark. We've had versions like the George Reeve version and I would say the Henry Cavill version as well, where there's like very little to distinguish the, the Clark and Superman. One is just kind of an extension of the other. We've had the Lois and Clark, the new adventures of Superman, which firmly in that post-crisis triangle era, Clark is who I am. Superman is what I can do. We've had, I think I would say with, once again, going back to my adventures with Superman and Superman and Lois, I feel like we've had this sense of Clark is the true persona and there's a bit of an act that he's adopting as Superman. But I feel like what's distinct with Superman and Lois and my adventures with Superman is the the true essence, the Clark, is more on the nerdier side, naturally, not an act that he's putting on as compared to, again, the Lois and Clark New Adventures of Superman version. So I don't know. I mean, I guess where do you guys land on this? And I and I've said this so many times, but ultimately, yes, I Clark on the farm to me represents the truest version of the character. But if we, we can kind of put that aside for a moment, what version do you guys gravitate towards in terms of these these this range of depictions that we've seen? I, I, yeah, if we're if we're putting aside Clark on the farm and we put that aside and we have to choose, then yeah, I, I say he's Superman. I say that, you know, he uh when he's wearing that costume, when he's standing proud, uh and he's He's not pretending. He's being strong. He's he's presenting a, a good face, but that's that's who he is. And when he's being Clark, uh, he's playing a role for a purpose. You know, he wants to be integrated into society. He wants Lois to look at him. He wants to do a job. He wants to be able to do a job without all the weight that comes with wearing that S shield, which is the most recognizable symbol in the world, probably. Um, so yeah, to to me, out of the two of them, again, if we're taking Clark and the farm out of that, I would say I would say he is Superman. He's pretending to be Clark. Fair enough. What about you, Ralph? Um, it's something in, you know, psychology and occultism about being able to hold two ideas as a singular in a sense, so that you're not, you know, being absolute in any direction, right? So he is both Clark and Superman, 
And he holds both of those and comfortably. It's not like he has to battle with being Clark or Superman. I think it's not the same situation as Peter Parker, right? Peter Parker is Peter Parker and he's Spider-Man. Batman is Bruce Wayne and he's Batman. Clark Kent and Superman, there's not as much like tension or drama between the two because he is very comfortably able to hold both, which I think is you know, shows him of sound mind as well <laughs> as everything else. All right, right on. I think I've I've found these most recent depictions, Superman and Lois and My Adventures with Superman, refreshing because you're, you are seeing that element of disguise, but I feel like you're seeing it almost more when he puts on the costume. And I feel like the, the Clark who's, again, talking about the food at the fair on the farm <laughs> really feels true to who he is. And I and I, kinda, yeah. I just kind of like that dynamic. But it's interesting. And we've seen it spun in different ways and always curious to see where this lands. All right. Well, once again, thank you both. I really appreciate this. This was a ton of fun. And I'm glad we got into all of this stuff. Again, we've come up on a lot of these in other episodes. But to sort of put them all together and unpack it. Uh, I found fascinating and I hope the audience did as well. So thank you to the audience. As always, I always appreciate you tuning in. Make sure you come back next week for another all new episode. And until then, it's about what you do. It's about action. Be sure to check out our sister podcast series, another exciting episode in the adventures of Superman, an episode by episode breakdown of the classic George Reeves television show available wherever you get podcasts. Please join us on social media, become a patron, and subscribe, rate, and review today. Links are in the show notes. Thank you all.